So another year comes to an end and another is about to begin. Let's look back at the year that was and try and look forward. Well, number one, Narendra Modi. Let's not kid ourselves. Mr. Modi was the winner of the year. This was the year he consolidated his power and he made it clear, particularly after the assembly elections in Chhattisgarh, Rajasthan and Madhya Pradesh, that he is almost certainly coming back to power next year and he's going to have a virtually unprecedented continuous third term. Now, many people believed that Mr. Modi, once he'd had two terms, once he'd established his supremacy over India, would aim in his third term to be less absolute in his power, to be somewhat gentler, to be somewhat softer, to be a great unifier, to bring India together and to ensure what his place in history was. Well, judging by what he's done this year, this is wrong. Yes, Mr. Modi probably is coming back, but no, you're not getting a warmer, cuddlier, gentler version of the Prime Minister. You're getting pretty much the same sort of Prime Minister you've had for 10 years and possibly a more concentrated version of that Prime Minister. Just look at the way he's responded after the elections. Look at the way Parliament was disrupted by the suspension of two-thirds of the opposition. This is not a Mr. Modi who has much patience with his critics, wants to go down as a unifying figure. He's quite happy being divisive, polarizing, whatever you want to call him. He's happy with his place in history as it is. And so you're going to get more of the same. So that's number one. Number two, I think there is a problem. And that problem is regional. If you look at Mr. Modi's successes, almost all of them come from the Hindi belt. Yes, there's Assam as an outlier, but essentially he wins every general election because he is, like it or not, undefeatable in the Hindi belt. He wins every assembly election and they rush to victory in every general election as well. So if Mr. Modi is so strong in the Hindi belt, what does it mean for the rest of India? Well, it means he's not necessarily that strong everywhere else. In Bengal, you will remember, he campaigned incessantly. He threw everything he had into the campaign and Mamta Banerjee won a landslide. More recently, you'll remember in the Karnataka election, he again campaigned incessantly. The BJP's had a presence in Karnataka for a while, and it was believed that the mixture of that presence and Mr. Modi's charisma would guarantee victory. Actually, it didn't. The Congress won. So there are states that remain immune to his charm. Punjab has remained resolutely an un-Modi, un-BJP state. His charm works in places like Maharashtra, to some extent, but never with the same fervor people demonstrate when they support him in the Hindi belt. So what you're going to get is a leader who rules the Hindi belt and therefore rules India. This is not necessarily unusual. It's long been said that he who rules the Hindi belt rules India. We forget that in 1977, when we talked about this great Janta landslide, actually the Janta Party only really won the Hindi belt. Indira Gandhi won the South. In 1989, when Rajiv Gandhi lost power, the victory was essentially in the north of India, in the Hindi belt. The Congress did okay in the south. So what we are seeing is a repetition of that pattern. Now, it's a repetition with a difference in that nobody's done it for as long as Mr. Modi has. Inevitably, there will be problems. 
for better or for worse, the BJP has always been seen as a Hindi belt party. And that's right from the Jansang days. It was believed that Mr. Modi came to office, he would be able to bridge that gap. He would be able to turn it into a truly national party. And to some limited extent, Assam, for instance, he has succeeded. Karnataka was a sort of BJP supporting state even before. But in the rest of India, no, I don't think he succeeded. The BJP is still largely a party that is at its strongest in the Hindi belt. If a person whose support comes from one part of India insists on being an absolute ruler, and Mr. Modi is nothing if not absolute, then how is the rest of India going to react? You're already hearing about a north-south divide. You've had Mamta Banerjee make criticisms of Delhi. I think over the next five years, unless Mr. Modi changes his approach, this is going to increase. There are going to be more divisions, more problems from the states, more problems particularly in South India, where people are going to argue that the government in Delhi doesn't really represent their interests. That's two. Three, what happens to the Congress? Where does it fit into all of this? Well, the short answer is it's not clear. For a long time, we've all blamed Rahul Gandhi for the Congress's problems. And I think much of the criticism is valid and fair. I think Rahul Gandhi fought a terrible campaign with that Chokidar Chorhe slogan, which never took off. I think he behaved irresponsibly by resigning as Congress president. No elections took place. He continued as an extra constitutional authority. So yes, many of the criticisms are valid. But if this year taught us anything, it is that the Congress's problems go beyond one family. They go beyond one individual. For a long time, we've been told by political journalists, you know, the problem with the Congress is the Gandhis dominate everything. They're such strong state leaders, people who work on the ground, who understand the states, who understand elections. Why doesn't the Congress give them a chance? Well, they have a chance. Kharge, Malukarajun Kharge, who is the current Congress president, is a strong president, is a regional leader with a base. In the assembly elections, Madhya Pradesh was all Kamarnath and Digvijay Singh. Rajasthan was Ashok Gehlot. Chhattisgarh was Bhupesh Baghel. Yes, Rahul did campaign, but it was clear that these people were calling the shots, handing out the tickets. And we know what happened. So there is a problem. I think the Congress's problems are that it hasn't been able to work out how to defeat Mr. Modi or even how to oppose him. It hasn't found a slogan. It hasn't found a position that resonates with India. And as long as it's continually wiped out in the Hindi belt, there is no hope it can ever come to power in the center. If the Congress continues this way, we are still looking at 40 to 50 seats at the next parliamentary election. So the next few months are crucial for the Congress. Can it revive? Can it find a way of opposing Mr. Modi? So far, the evidence suggests it can't. That's three. Four, foreign policy. Uh, you remember a country called Pakistan? I asked because you don't hear that much about it now, do you? I remember in the early days of Mr. Modi, everything was Pakistan's fault. Pakistan was this existential threat to India. Pakistan was our deadly enemy. Pakistan was sending terrorists. All of us who had views that were different from BJP trolls were essentially Pakistanis. The favorite abuse of BJP trolls was go to Pakistan. Some of this, of course, a lot of it, was an attempt to attack the Indian Muslim minority by subconsciously connecting them with Pakistan. 
But here's the thing. It's all gone. No? Do you hear about Pakistan now? When is the last time anybody asked you or me to go to Pakistan? Do you even see that slogan on social media? Do you hear government ministers talking about Pakistan? Are the electronic channels, which pretty much do what the government says, going on and on about Pakistan? No. There's been a change of approach when it comes to foreign policy or even domestic policy. The BJP is no longer focusing on Pakistan. Why? Could it be that diminishing returns have set in? Could it be that nobody believes Pakistan, given the mess it is in, is really a threat to India? Could it be that we don't want to attract too much attention or draw too much attention towards Pakistan, towards our border dispute, towards what's going on in Kashmir? I don't know. But there's certainly a change of stance there. China. Now, you remember when Mr. Modi came to office, he hosted Chinese leaders. A lot was said about a new era of India-China relations. Well, that's gone wrong very quickly. Not only is it clear the Chinese don't want to be our friends, it's also clear they don't like us very much and that this hostility translates into military action. However much the government tries not to talk about it, it's clear that there are things happening on the border that are not entirely in India's interest. It's clear the Chinese have been more successful in the border area than we are willing to let on. We've been able to translate this Chinese hostility, I think that's to the credit of our foreign policy establishment, into an advantage. We've presented ourselves to the West as the last bulwark against Chinese domination. If you don't support us, we've told America and the rest of the West, you're stuck with China, so we are your best bet. It's a good policy and to an extent it's true, but it doesn't make much difference at the border where the Chinese are ensconced and there will be trouble going forward. Now, people are very critical of the Modi Jai Shankar foreign policy, but I think much of that criticism is unfair. They've actually done okay. One instance where they managed to pull off something I thought was going to be difficult was the Ukraine war. If you remember, America and the West took a you're with us or you're against us kind of position. India said, no, we will continue to do business with Russia. We will continue to buy oil. Russia is our friend. And yes, we want to be friends with you as well. There were huge, huge criticisms all over, but we got away with it. We're still friends with America. Mr. Putin has just said to Jay Shankar how much he loves India. We've managed to walk that tightrope. There's another tightrope we've walked, which people don't seem to realize, and that's to do with the conflict in Gaza. It's no secret that Mr. Modi is quite keen on Israel, on the current leadership of Israel, on the people who make Pegasus, etc. But we've traditionally always been friends with the Islamic world. We've had many, many years of good relations with Arab countries. Now, at a time when individual politicians in the West, the media are all writing about this government's mistreatment, shall we say, of our Muslim minority, you would think that there would be some difficulty in maintaining that relationship with the Arab world. The extraordinary thing is, no, there hasn't been. Relations between India and the Islamic world are better than they've ever been. How do you explain this? Well, there's only one cynical explanation. It's now clear that the Arab world cares about Islam, but it doesn't really care about Indian Muslims. If you attack Islam, then yes, they will be upset. We saw the spectacle of a BJP spokesperson 
who said on television the sort of things these people say in private all the time. There was a huge uproar. The Arab world objected and the Indian government obligingly threw her overboard, called her a fringe element and said, no, no, we're very sorry, but we have nothing to do with this person, which I think everyone knew was a lie, but it was in everyone's interest to go ahead. Can we maintain this balance? Can Mr. Modi continue to be great friends with Benjamin Netanyahu and Israel? And can we continue to be friends with the Arab world? Oddly enough, it looks like we can. I think that's whatever you may think of the government, one huge success of our foreign policy. We've walked tightropes and we've made it work. There's one tightrope I think we've fallen off. It was okay when Justin Trudeau accused us of plotting to kill Khalistanis because you know, Trudeau has often made irresponsible remarks before. He never had any evidence for this claim, or if he did, he never made it in public. Khalistanis have found refuge in Canada and have over the years plotted against India. So perhaps we had a right to be upset about that. But the American allegation, it's an indictment now, it's no longer an allegation, suggesting that an official of the Indian government got a middleman, an underworld figure, to try and hire a hitman to kill a Khalistani leader in America is serious. It's interesting also that unlike the Canadian allegation, which we poo-pooed, we have not denied this. We've only said we're investigating. So you've got what? This government going around trying to assassinate Khalistanis on foreign soil. It's the sort of thing that America's okay with if you go off and kill a terrorist in some country where the rule of law does not apply. But the Americans were never going to be happy with Indians hiring assassins to operate on their soil. And yet we went ahead and did it. When you think about it, it's so much at odds with the rest of our foreign policy. It's almost as though our external security has been handed over to the Punjab police and they're going ahead with an encounters policy. We're in trouble on that one. And I think we will be in trouble with America, no matter how much we say we're a bulwark against China, unless we sort that out quickly. So what do we look forward to in the year ahead? Well, more of the same. I don't see any dramatic changes. I see Mr. Modi coming back to power. I don't see the softer, gentler Modi we talked about. I see him getting perhaps even more extreme in his positions, even less willing to listen to his critics. That's the India of the next year. Happy New Year.